Welcome to the Eastern Oklahoma Catholic Podcast, your source for all things Catholic in the Diocese of Tulsa and Eastern Oklahoma. A reading from the book of Genesis. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Then God said, let us make man in our image and after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. So God created man in his own image. And in the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed, which is upon the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit, you shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, to every bird of the air, to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life. And I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. The word of the Lord. The Bible begins with a theological and even liturgical description of the creation of the heavens and the earth. But what do I mean by theological and liturgical? Well, by theological, I mean that the sacred author wants to set the God of Israel, the true God, apart from the false gods of the nations. And I say liturgical because creation can be seen as coming forth from God in a kind of orderly liturgical procession, with each thing in its own way pointing to the Creator. And so in Genesis, we have this beautiful image, this beautiful story of the creation of the heavens and the earth. But Genesis is very different from other creation myths of old. And I want to give you three reasons why it's radically different. The first reason is these creation myths often had the God or gods creating with pre-existing stuff. So they take things, matter, like a kind of primordial clay and form it to make things. The second reason is because there's often uh, chaos and disorder and violence at the beginning and origin of things, at the heart of the story. And finally, human beings in these creation myths are created so that they may serve the gods in a kind of slavish way. They labor and toil so that the gods may rest. But notice that Genesis turns these creation myths on their heads. So to go through these three points again, first of all, God doesn't create with pre-existing matter or stuff. Instead, he speaks the worlds into being and they're created out of nothing. Ex nihilo, as we say in the Christian tradition, out of or from nothing. When human beings create, like when Steve Jobs creates the first computer, he takes pre-existing matter or stuff, puts it together, different components and parts to make a computer. Not so with God. He creates with infinite power, out of nothing. The second point, God creates in sovereign freedom. He's not compelled to do so. He does so because he wills to do so. 
And he does so not in violence and disorder, but in order and harmony and peace as he speaks the worlds into being. And finally, human beings in Genesis are not meant to be slaves. They're meant to be servants of a kind, but more than servants ultimately, friends, sons and daughters of God, members of his household. And they're meant to govern the rest of creation in wisdom and love. Another aspect of Genesis I think is worth pointing out is that there's a hierarchy of being. In other words, there are creatures big and small, lowly and lofty, all of which in their own manner point to the creator. And at the pinnacle of this created hierarchy, this created order, stands the human being, created male and female, as we read in Genesis. Man and woman both are made in the image and likeness of God. But what exactly does it mean to be in the image of God? It doesn't mean that we look like God, as when we say that Jack has his father's nose. God is spirit after all. But it does mean that we have powers of intellect and will. We can know and love and enter into communion with other persons. And because we can know and love and enter into communion with other persons, we're moral agents in the world. What we do actually has consequence, has eternal value, either for good or for ill. And so as human beings, when we act in accord with this wise and good order that God has created, we're perfected as human beings. And when we act against this order, when we act in selfishness and, and um, you know, turning our backs on others and on God, we defile this image of God in us. And this is exactly what we see happening in Genesis chapter 3. God had given them friendship. He had given them the bounty of the garden such that they could eat anything they wanted except for one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And if knowledge sounds like a good thing, in this context it's not, because they wanted to take hold of the knowledge, right? To become the arbiters, the deciders, the judges of what is right and wrong, good and evil. And that's exactly what they try to do, tempted by the devil. But we know what happens. They fall from God's grace. The communion they had with God, the supernatural friendship they had with God is severed. It's gone. It's forfeited. And it has ramifications for human nature as well, because the human intellect is darkened, right? We suffer from ignorance. We suffer from malice in the will. We suffer from weakness in the passions. We have this perverse inclination towards sin called concupiscence, and we have to die. This is obviously not a very pleasant reality, but God promised the day they ate of it, they would die the death, and God keeps his promises. So we have a situation where human beings are really separated from God in a radical way, and even their human nature is weakened. But God doesn't leave us like this. Throughout salvation history, we see him reaching out in covenants to Noah and Abraham and Moses and David, trying to reestablish friendship until finally in Jesus Christ, we have union with God once again. And through his sacrifice, we reestablish friendship, our members of his household, members of his covenant, and we'll talk about that more in the next video. All right, we're here to talk more about God's creation. I'm here with Father Sean Donovan in the uh, Church of the Immaculate Conception here in Pahuska. So one of the things I thought we would start off with, Father Donovan, is to talk about modern science, contemporary science and creation because I don't know your perspective as a pastor, but I've had many questions where people are concerned about the compatibility of faith and science, whether the Genesis narrative is kind of undermined. So I don't know if you have any thoughts of that, if you've encountered parishioners who had concerns. 
Sure. So these intellectual intellectual questions, oftentimes, uh, we just have to start defining our terms before we can have a conversation so that we don't talk past each other. So if we're going to talk about uh, the study of the natural sciences, uh, well, what's the origin of these natural sciences? Who designed them and who gave it its laws? So if the origin is Almighty God as it is, just as all philosophical truth is derived from Almighty God as well, then truth cannot contradict itself, especially coming from the same source. Another way to put it would be that Almighty God will not contradict himself either. So faith and science are are very compatible. In fact, uh, Pope John Paul II wrote a little document about this too, uh, called Faith and Reason. So Fides et Ratio is a very helpful short text that people can help to walk themselves through this uh, kind of reorientation, understanding that uh, the study of the sciences is not uh, just uh, not opposed to the faith, but in fact, it's it's an application of the faith in our own secular uh, branch of our lives. Yeah, wonderful. I've I've always found that very compelling. John Paul II, as you said, draws out those principles very clearly. Another thing that I always found compelling growing up was the fact that undergirding modern science, the presuppositions of modern science, is the truth that the world, the universe, is intelligible. We can actually go out into the world and find things about it, right? We can we can experiment and we can dig deeper, and there's truth to be had. Right, so if you have this conception of the universe in which things are ultimately kind of unintelligible, what are you going to do? How are you going to found modern science on something like that? It would seem to be uh, contradictory to, uh, on one hand, say that science has laws, mm-hmm. and at the same time to say that science does not have a lawgiver. Yeah, yeah, that's an excellent point. That's an excellent point. So I, I found that when you present that. To people, for the most part, they understand it. So, you know, uh, in contemporary cosmology or physics or whatever, you might talk about the Big Bang, right? Sure. Uh, a kind of beginning in time, perhaps. Right. But as I as I try to point out in the lecture, it's also true that creation for the Catholic is something ongoing. Uh, scholastics will talk about creatio uh, continua, right? right? God sustains all things in being. So it's not just a past event. It's not something we just look at kind of with a historical or scientific lens, but it's an ongoing reality that God sustains us in being. I think it's beautiful. It, it's true. And oftentimes there, there are various temptations for those who are rather short-sighted in their argumentation to say that, uh, well, we have the Big Bang. So right. we don't actually have to believe anything beyond that. That actually explains the origin of creation and the history of the world or all that exists. Um, they usually are not aware of who even came up with that theory. Yeah. A Belgian priest. So uh, I think Monsignor Georges Lemaitre would probably disagree with them uh, being a priest. Uh, it was interesting as well because the Big Bang Theory, as <laughs> as a name, was an insult given by mm-hmm. colleagues uh, and then defended by, uh, well, this uh, other physicist named Albert Einstein. <laughs> um, so that actually, I think that Monsignor Man, Lemaitre— I've never heard of Albert. Who is this guy? Yeah, he's, you know, he's kind of big in some circles. Okay. And so, but he was one of the few to— defend Monsignor Lemaitre and said, actually, this 
seems to actually explain a whole lot about the development of the universe, but it's a matter of the development of the universe. So as opposed to the origin, mm -hmm. because if you consider, well, what's the big bang theory talking about uh, the explosion of the singularity to account for the beginning of movement mm -hmm. in the history of creation. That's fine. That's helpful, but doesn't help us to understand the origin of the singularity. Yeah. So it, it doesn't actually account for the beginning of all creation. It's in a, it's a description of the beginning of movement in creation, which is rather important, especially if you're going to take in a kind of an Aristotelian approach to the prime mover. Sure. Uh, but that's the big difference also between uh, any kind of movement or propagation as opposed to true creation. Mm -hmm. So, uh, which St. Thomas Aquinas defines as having to, to create true creation is out of nothing. That's right. So if it's not out of nothing, that is not true creation. And therefore, Almighty God is the only creator. We propagate. We continue. We are able to rearrange the elements of creation, hopefully in a better way, so we can improve upon the combinations of things that already exist. But that's mere continuation or rearrangement, propagation, even of our own species, uh, is... A continuation at the same time being a unique species made in the image and likeness of god we actually are able to and we're the only ones who are co-creators in almighty god because mm -hmm. of the eternal soul that is part of our own creation so that's a, a difference not just in degree but kind yeah that's exactly right um now here in pahuska there's a lot of natural beauty so you've got, you know, the beautiful grass, the beautiful bison. Sometimes people don't think of bison as beautiful, but they do have their own beauty. They signify, they point to uh, the goodness of God, their creator. So maybe we could talk about that. Um, you can draw from your own experience or whatever, but how do you see created things pointing to their creator? They're like signposts. Sure. Things pointing to God. Well, especially when we are captivated by either their complexity or their objective beauty, mm -hmm. uh, then we can say, well, okay, well, this is compelling to me either because like, for instance, even just its sheer size with regard to the bison yeah. being so, uh, if you have an, if you have a thousand pound animal running at you at 30 miles an hour that can jump six feet, either vertically or horizontally, you might be impressed yeah, uh, or scared depending on if you're in your car or not. <laughs> uh, but it's impressive. And the complexity of also the, the microscopic aspect of nature is very compelling as well. You can take, you know, it's interesting when you, whether you talk to chemists or astronomers, both being captivated by the, the delicacy and intricacy of creation, mm -hmm. but on entirely different levels, whether a microscopic or cosmological uh, scale. Yeah. So uh, when you consider that kind of complexity and intricacy of creation, it is a very clear signpost, a very clear indicator that this is not a random. Mm -hmm. um, much like some people will give the examples of uh, considering like a Goldilocks character. You go into a forest and you see a home. Mm-hmm. 
it probably didn't grow out of the trees naturally, <laughs> let alone you have three bowls of porridge, uh, one that's too cold, one that's too hot, and one that's perfect. Just right. Then that probably did not spontaneously uh, grow out of that kitchen table. This was arranged. And much like if you walk into the complexity of the natural sciences and you say, wow, this was arranged, this was by design, it would be impossible and also absurd to say that uh, everything came from nothing and then it came into a, a great deal of complex balance. Mm -hmm. And to try to sell somebody on that uh, would be very impressive. Yeah. I think that's right. And another thing that I found compelling that, that uh, we talked about in the lecture too, is that um, at least for St. Thomas Aquinas, um, God creates a multitude of creatures, each of which in their own manner reflect the divine goodness. And they do so in a way that one singular creature can't, wouldn't be able to. And that's again, compelling for me because um you have not only individual natures, you know, like a human nature, we're ordered to certain things, to certain goods or ends, and a cat is ordered to certain goods and ends, but also these kind of coordinate, right? You have all these natures out there in the world, and there's a kind of coordinated good that they all share. And there's, you might, you know, they're all after a common good, right? right. God. And so that to me is, is a very beautiful vision of things. And St. Thomas isn't the only one to draw this out, others too. Um, but I think that's also very compelling that the good of the whole universe is, as God says in Genesis 131, very good. So there's something about the universe as a whole that is really beautiful. And a complex interdependence mm -hmm. in that creation. Like, you may have heard about this story just of, you know, I think it was National Geographic was covering it a few years ago, talking about the wolves in Yellowstone. Do you remember this yes, one? Yes, yes, yes. Very fascinating. You know, so they're talking about how, well, we, we, we've been killing wolves for a long time because they were so dangerous to us. Uh, but it threw off the environment. It threw mm -hmm. off the ecosystems uh, present in Yellowstone to, to such a terrible degree that they didn't have natural predators and various species were decimating their own natural environment because they didn't have this natural predator that was supposed to be there yeah. that we had nearly eliminated. And as soon as they were reintroduced, then the entire ecosystem was brought back into balance. Yeah, that's exactly right. Or, you know, deer season, which is relevant right. uh, this time of year. For jerky. You know, exactly. Yeah. And and we we take it for granted. It's it's kind of the influence of, of humanity. But still, if you don't eliminate, if you don't kill for the sake of meat and a certain amount of the population, things go awry too. Yeah. It's very important. I mean, even here in the tall grass, uh, now is culling season. Mm -hmm. So that's why if we were up in the tall grass today with 25 mile an hour winds, uh, we still wouldn't find any bison Yeah, because they're all in their pens and they're getting their shots or they're getting butchered. Mm -hmm. And then we'll get the babies here coming in the spring. But if we didn't do that, then we also wouldn't be taking care of the health of the herd. Yeah. Much like, uh, you know, rainforests in particular, uh, West coast states that'll go unnamed, uh, that if you don't actually, uh, do some proper care of the forests. It's not deforestation, it's proper care to also ensure that there won't be out of control wildfires. Sure. So we're supposed to be uh, subduing the earth 
according to Genesis, and making sure that it's also being properly cared for as stewards, because this is not our own. Yeah, that's that's a good segue into something we can talk about too, which is man in the image and likeness of God. You mentioned that before, and you mentioned that man has a certain stewardship over creation that requires reason. Um, but if the image of God is principally about man's mind and, you know, about his intellectual nature, then what about other things? Have you ever thought about that? I mean, are other things in the image of God— um, uh, St. Thomas, for instance, will talk about how there are traces right. of God and things. I don't know if you're familiar. Traces with of the Trinity, especially, uh-huh. especially in yeah. humanity. Exactly. So uh, you're you're emphasizing, as is very uh, understandable, the Christological aspect, uh, because Christ Himself, the Word, emanates from God the Father uh, as an in, as part of the intellectual aspect of the Holy Trinity, whereas the Holy Spirit. Uh, proceeds from the Father and the Son uh, as an act of the will, because it derives from the love between the Father and the Son. And in that way, as creatures who have an intellect and a will, we are a unique reflection of the Holy Trinity, according to St. Thomas. So, whereas other creatures, even very bright creatures, like, you know, probably the best dogs we've ever had yeah. are are very emotionally intelligent and they're uh, good companions and they especially for the smart dogs they can be trained and not work just on instinct uh, but they don't have an intellect nor a will yeah. in that sense that we do uh, that being we can understand what is good and evil and then choose it to align our own will with almighty gods which they cannot do but they're there in service to us, yeah. So it, it's it's there is a hierarchy mm-hmm. in in creation and in being uh, because of this. Because who resembles Almighty God to a greater degree, but also in a, in a totally different kind. Mm-hmm. So uh, those who would actually share in an intellect and a will would be the holy angels. Yeah. So they would share, uh, but to a greater degree. Yeah. Whereas all the rest of creation here on earth would be of a different kind. Yeah, that's an excellent point. And I think it keeps us humble too when, on the one hand, we recognize we do have an inherent dignity that's greater than that of the dog, even. And I know some people get mad at that, but we do, right? But it humbles us. Those with kids and dogs would agree with you, I think. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, probably. Yeah. But it humbles us too because we're the lowest of intellectual creatures. Right, and well, so speak for yourself. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. <laughs> so, so as soon as we as we puff ourselves up and think, oh, I'm I'm intelligent, you know, I'm in the image of God, and you know, we're kind of put in our place. It's like, well, naturally, angels are higher, and so we have our place yeah. in the hierarchy that you yeah, mentioned. We yeah, we do. And also, the thing about human beings is uh, we're fallen, right? So we have right. fallen human nature. Right. So we talked about Adam and Eve, you know, the first sin. Sin seems like a good time sometimes. Yeah, seems like a good idea at the time. It never is. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so as, as a priest, you know, you, you encounter people who maybe confess to you their sins, who come to Mass in order to have sins, uh, for venial sins in the Holy Eucharist or something like that. Um, how have do them you forgiven. See, have them forgiven, yeah. Yep. So how do you see um, sin kind of playing out in the lives of daily people, whether original, maybe they're, they're mm-hmm. not baptized or something, and actually— right. As a priest, maybe you have some rich experiences. Oh, well, I mean, like that. just, uh, I think all of us probably do with regard to 
uh, just observing mm-hmm. our own neighbors and humanity in general. Uh, everybody's got their own favorite sin, you know, and the, the temptation is to convince ourselves that, well, you know, my mortal sin is not nearly as bad as that person's mortal sin, yeah. right? So uh, they're still, you know, equally mortal and uh, just as good of a ticket to hell as anybody else. Uh, but that's the temptation for us. We say like, oh, well, you know, this is my favorite sin, so I can excuse it. Uh, at the same time, if you have full knowledge, deliberate consent, and it's grave matter, you've separated yourself from Almighty God. Um, and that's part of also, I think, the, the societal uh, claims to our own sinfulness and, and temptations uh, trying to convince us that, like, well, look, I mean, there are people that are so much worse off, yeah. you know, because they've been compounding, you know, different kinds of sins that we may not actually participate in. So those three sources of sin with regard to the flesh, the world, and the devil, yeah. um, it's either e- easier to project it onto other people and societal evil and not take any personal responsibility or, you know, the devil made me do it, you know, kind of nonsense, as opposed to understanding that you have a free will and an intellect and you can either choose to receive God's grace and allow him to sanctify you, to make you holy because we just can't do it on our own Mm -hmm. or not. Yeah. And so we just keep on showing back up to the fountain of God's mercy, especially in his sacramental grace and sacramental confession and the blessed sacrament or we don't. And uh, we can do so. The beauty is, is also as as Roman Catholics, we can come back home every day to the throne of Almighty God as heaven comes down to earth right behind us. Yeah, that's exactly right. And yeah, we definitely don't want to end on a bad note. You know, on the one hand, we're sinful, we're wounded, we have wounded human natures. But on, on the other hand, as we'll talk about in the next video, uh, Christ has come to redeem us. And his salvific work has real impact on our lives. We participate it, uh, in it through the sacraments and so forth. So we definitely want to uh, see you guys next time to talk about Oh, yeah. That. We were made for Almighty God. We were made for Almighty God. Yeah. And right. we're restless until we rest in him. That's right. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, uh, Father Donovan. I appreciate Absolutely. your time. Pleasure. And great conversation. Yeah.